Amen. You may be seated. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know he is living whatever men may say. He is our living hope. I want to look at that this morning. So take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 7, your book to page number 22. I want to talk about the, the fruit life this morning. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus, um, and this is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. As, as you understand, the Bible was not written in chapters and verses. Uh, Jesus preached this message. There are two discourses in the book of Matthew. Um, this is the most famous sermon ever preached, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. First part talks about what a Christian looks like. And here, we're picking up kind of toward the end of his, um, of his message here in Matthew um, chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 Verse number 13, it says this, Enter it in the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. What does that mean? By the way, did you pass your prayer cards to the aisle? Did I say that yet? Take your prayer cards, pass them to the aisle, and some of our team will collect them as they uh, slip out to spend some time in prayer. Matthew 7, 13, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is broad that leads to destruction, there are many who enter through it. What does that mean? That means that, that heaven, um, is, or that hell, is, is going to be a... Enter through the narrow gate, the way is broad. Hell is going to be a crowded place, right? There, there's, a, there's a broad, you can get to hell very easily, just do nothing and you'll get there. Verse 14, for the gate is small, the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are a few who find it. Heaven will not be crowded. There is a, a narrow gate behind that narrow gate. There is a narrow way. People say, you're so narrow to say there's only one way to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I'm one of the ways, one of the truths, one of the lives. There's a narrow and behind that gate is a narrow way. And then Jesus, in this context, gives them a, a warning. I want us to look at that, so stand with me now. I'm going to sit the rest of the time, so you can stand for a little bit with me. And he gives them this warning in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You shall know them by their works. Is that what your Bible says? What does your Bible say? Yeah, mine does too. Don't let me do that to you now, okay? Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes or figs and thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good works. What is it? Oh, yeah, fruit. But a bad tree bears bad works. Thank you. Fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad works. Oh, yeah, fruit. Nor can a bad tree produce good works. Fruit. Every tree does not bear good works. Fruit, oh yeah, is cut down and thrown in the fire. So then you will know them by their works. Oh yeah, by their fruits. Now, now, now what is the difference between a fruit and a work? This building is the, the work of men's hands. Men built this building. But you, you can't make an apple. Only God can do that. We want to talk about that, the difference between a fruit and a work. Before we do, I want, I want you to do something. I'm going to let you talk in church. Some of you do it anyway, but we're going to do it on purpose. In a moment, I want you to turn to two people, and I want you to ask them two questions. Don't do it until I tell you. Here's the first one. I want you to turn to someone and say to them, are you spiritually alive? And when someone asks you that, if you're not, just say, no, I'm spiritually dead. But, but if you are spiritually alive, then, then say, yes, there, there's another life living inside of me. If, if they're spiritually dead, just say, listen to the message. If they're spiritually alive, then, then here's the second question. Share three evidences that let you know you're spiritually alive. Dan, are you physically alive this morning? Yes. How do you know you're physically alive? Three ways. Uh, I can move, I can move, move I can bad breath, and you can think, okay? 
Okay, great. So we, we know that Dan's alive because he can give evidence pretty easy to that. Well, if we're spiritually alive, we should be equally as easy to give those answers to that question. So right now, find two people, ask them those two questions, then you can sit down. All right, you can be seated. Now, if you, if you just enjoyed that, that's probably because of spiritual life inside of you. If you just went, oh, I've got to talk to somebody about God in church? If that was difficult for you, that's a problem. I was in a meeting in Illinois. I asked the church to do that. This whole section on this side was all senior adults. When I asked them to do that, they all just sat down and folded their arms like this. The next day in staff meeting, the pastor said, Steve, that was kind of hard what you did on Sunday. I said, asking people to talk about God in church? That, that, that's a real stretch for us. Why is that so hard for us? What is the difference between a fruit and a work? A, a fruit is something only God can produce. A, a work is something that we can do. I, I've asked people that question you know, for years. How do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know you're saved? All, all kinds of variations. I like James Kennedy's question. If you were to die today and stand before God, and he would say, why shall I let you into heaven, what would you say? That's a great diagnostic question. And as I've asked that question, people have answered in a lot of ways. How do you know that you are a follower of Christ? How, how do you know? Well, here's some things that people have said. I, I know that I'm a Christian. I know I'm a follower of Christ because I believe Jesus was real. Now, now listen, Christians believe Jesus was real. But just believing that does not mean that you're a Christian. Around in California, one of my sons had an eye issue, took him in the hospital, and, and the technician was a Hindu. So I was talking to him while we were waiting for the x-rays to come back. And, and, and he believed that Jesus was real. He even believed that Jesus was God. He also believed that Muhammad was God, and Krishna was God, and Buddha was God. Jesus was a God. But, but here is a man who believed in Jesus, believed he was real, even believed he was God. But he was not a follower of Christ. So I know, I know I'm a Christian because I know what the Bible says about salvation. That's great. One of the former rulers of Russia said he memorized the first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He read them so many times, he almost memorized it. He said he did it because he wanted to know his enemy. Well, if he read the, the Gospels, he knew what the Bible said about salvation. That did not mean that he was a follower of Christ. I, I'm, I know I'm a Christian because I was in this service, and somebody said, if you, if you want to be a Christian, come forward. Now, it's fine to do that. It's fine to walk an aisle. But, but you can wear the carpet out from the front to the back and still not be a Christian. Just walking down an aisle does not mean that you're a Christian. Say, I know I'm a Christian because I, I prayed this prayer. Somebody gave me this track. I read this prayer. Somebody told me to repeat these words. I prayed these words. It, it's Christians pray. But just praying, there's no magical words. If I say these certain words in this certain order, everything's okay. I, I know I'm saved because I invited Christ into my life. It, it's actually you responding to his invitation. We have made this thing so man-centered. I, I accepted Jesus, tried drugs, tried sex, I'm going to try Jesus. It, it's actually you accept him responding to the, you responding to the invitation that he has given you. So I, I know I'm a Christian because I had this great big emotional cry. It, it's fine to cry. But just having some emotional tantrum doesn't mean that you're a part of God's family. So I, I know I'm saved because my parents told me I was saved. I think we've watched too many lawyer movies. We kind of have this image that when we get to heaven, it's going to be a courtroom scene, and the bailiff's going to say, all rise, and God's going to come take his place on the bench, and, and we're going to call our first witness. And we're going to say, now, now uh, Pastor, come, come tell God what a great church member I was. 
how many mission trips I went on, and how much money I gave. Okay, thank you, Pastor. Now, now Mom and Dad, you come take the stand. Now, now, tell God about what happened to me, you know, when I was four or eight or whatever. You told me about it, so, so tell God about that. And we think we're going to call the witnesses to, to give, you know, credibility to our, our, our decision. It's not going to be a courtroom scene like that. God is a judge. There's a book. It's called The Lamb's Book of Life. And God will open that book. If your name is not in that book, it doesn't matter what your pastor thinks about you, what your parents told you. All that matters is what God knows about you. So I know I'm saved. I was baptized. I joined the church. And baptism is a great thing to do. The reason some followers of Christ doubt their salvation is because they've never really been biblically baptized. It's believer's baptism. You get baptized after you become a Christian. And it's important to do, but it does not save you. And we so I, I went in that tank. You can go in that tank, a dry law sinner, go down and come up a wet law sinner. Standing in a baptismal does not make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage doesn't make you a car. It's not about your location. I'm glad that you've joined a Bible-preaching church, and you should do that. But the majority of people in church this morning are lost and headed for hell, I believe, if you include all denominations. So, so just, just being baptized or joining a church, as good as those things are, does not save you. Well, I don't want to save. I read my Bible, and Christians should read the Bible. That's an important thing to do. But it's, just because you read your Bible does not mean you're a Christian. I was in outside of Tampa some time ago, and a 65-year-old lady came to give a testimony. She said, 25 years ago, I was in an evangelistic service with my sister. At the invitation, my sister went forward. Well, she was my ride, so I followed her down the front. And we sat down there, and a, and a, and a man took a Bible, and, and, and he was telling my sister uh, some things, and I was kind of half listening. And he said to my sister, would you like to pray this prayer? And she said, sure. So she prayed a prayer. He told her to pray. He turned to me and said, would you like to pray this prayer? I said, sure. So I prayed the words he told me to pray. He said, now, now you're a Christian. I want you to get a Bible. He said, read it through every year, and you'll grow in your Christian life. She said, for 25 years... Every year, I've read my Bible through. I wonder how many people here have read their Bible through 25 times. She said, but this week, I met Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. It's great to read the Bible, to read it through. But just because you've done that doesn't mean that you're a Christian. So well, I, I, I've been here every night this week. I go to church. I, 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 I went to church nine months before I was born. I mean, I, I've, I've gone to church all my life. As a child, I had a drug problem. My parents had to drag me to church. And, and uh, so, so, you know, we, we go through that. But, but the issue, just, just going to church, I'm glad you're in church. I'm glad you're going to be here tonight. But that's not the issue. So I know I'm saved because I have witnessed, I have seen people come to Christ. I've gone on mission trips. I have led people to the Lord, which is great. But you can do that without knowing Christ. The founder of our ministry grew up in the home of an evangelist. The year before he got saved as a teenage boy, he led 38 people to Christ. He knew how to take the Bible and walk people through that, all the while knowing it was not true in his own life. Let's make sure that we're on the same page as it comes to the gospel. Here's what Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. So let's make sure we understand, what does it mean we talk about the gospel? Here's the basics. I know I am a sinner, and I can make no contribution to my salvation. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is a chasm between us and God. 
It is a chasm that we cannot bridge. How many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? The Grand Canyon is an amazing place. It's a huge hole in the ground. It's like from 11 to 18 miles across. Let's just say I decided to have a, a competition to see who could jump the farthest across the Grand Canyon. Yeah, that's going to be the contest. When I was in high school, I ran track. I did a pole vault, and it was right next to the running long jump. And so, so I'm going I'm to be the first contestant. So the stands are set up. I'm going to take off, and I, I leap out over the Grand Canyon. Let's just say I could go 10 feet in my prime. Probably couldn't, but let's just say I could. So I go out there 10 feet. I have the record. The crowd applauds. I go a mile down, splat. My next contestant uh, is going to be a guy named Bob Beeman. You know, there, there, there are some records that just get shattered. Mickey Mantle hitting a 565-foot home run. You know, Tiger Woods winning the U.S. Open by 15 strokes. And Secretariat winning the Belmont Stakes by 31 links. I mean, it just, just shatters records. Maybe the most shattered record ever was in the running long jump. In 1968, the, the record for the running long jump was 27 feet, 4 and 3 fourths inches. And people said, will anyone ever be able humanly to jump 28 feet? And Bob Beeman went down to the Mexico Olympics, and he took off. He broke the world's record. He didn't just jump 28 feet. He jumped 29 feet, 2 and a half inches. He broke the record by 22 inches. Incredible. So he's my next contestant in his prime. So Bob takes off, and he jumps out 29 feet, 2 and a half inches, shatters my record. Everyone applauds. He goes a mile down, splat. That record lasted until 1991. It's still the current world's record. Mike Powell went to Tokyo. He broke the world's record by two inches. He's my next contestant. He goes out. He jumps, breaks the record. Everyone applauds. Mile down, splat. Now, what's the point? No one is ever going to humanly jump across the Grand Canyon. It's physically impossible. And it doesn't matter if you can jump 10 feet or 30 feet or 300 feet or three miles. It's 11 miles across. No one's going to jump across the Grand Canyon. And the chasm between us and God cannot be bridged by any works man can do. My, my wife was the first one that became a Christian in her home. Her folks went to a church that didn't preach the gospel. It was not a Bible-teaching church. And, and as a junior high girl, they had a falling out, and they started going to a church. And, and she heard the gospel for the first time. Then her dad came to faith in Christ, and one by one, the last holdout <coughs> was her mom. I, I don't really understand mother-in-law jokes. I had the dearest, sweetest mother-in-law. She passed away a few years ago, but she, she was an incredible lady. And before she got saved, she was a great lady. She didn't drink. She didn't smoke. She didn't cuss. She was moral. She worked alongside her husband. She was involved in all kinds of civic activities. And so when the pastor of the church would say, you need to be saved, she thought, saved from What? She was better than most of the ladies in the church who claimed to be Christians. She would have been the Mike Powell of long jumping. She could have jumped the farthest of anyone I know across that gap between God and man. But all of her righteousness would have been about 30 feet. And it's 11 miles across. And there came a day in her life when she too acknowledged that she was a lost, hell-bound sinner, that her righteousness was filthy rags, and she too needed a Savior. And, and there's some people here this morning who, who you're trying to jump across that chasm in your own energy and own strength, and, and you're going to have to realize at some point you cannot bridge the gap between you and God. And you don't have to. Because the second part of the gospel is this, I must receive Christ the Son because He alone is the righteousness that God the Father accepts. 
The Bible says it is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. Those works of righteousness, that, that's the works. It's not fruit. It's not by all the works we have done, but according to his mercy that he has saved us. So I received Christ the Son because he is the provision that God has made. And then thirdly, and this is the missing word in the gospel today, I must turn from my sin. Am I willing to turn? It's the word repentance. Repentance means a change of mind resulting in a change in my direction. The Greek word is metanoia. It's a, it's a military term. It means an about face where, where I'm going in one direction and I stop and I do an about face and I head in a different direction. When did that happen to you? When did you get stopped in your tracks and turn from your sin and turn to God? And here's the fourth aspect. I believe in and receive Jesus Christ the Lord for all that he is. That, that phrase, that title, Jesus Christ the Lord, is not a meaningless title. He is Jesus. He is all man. He was able to be my substitute of the cross. He is Jesus Christ. He's also the Messiah. He's all God. Wait, Steve, you say he was all man. He's all man and all God. How do you explain that? I don't know. I don't know. That's what the Bible says. Because he was all God, he could be my Savior. And he is Jesus Christ the Lord. He is the supreme authority. And when you receive him, you receive him for all that he is. Certainly my, my substitute. Thankful that he's my savior, but he is also the supreme authority in my life. So, so I could funnel that down as simply as I can distill it. I would say this. I, I know Christ died for my sin. I receive his gift of life. I repent and turn from my sin, and I believe he is my Lord. That, that, that's the basics of the gospel. Now, this is the most important test you're ever going to take in your entire life. Pa Paul said this. He said, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself, lest indeed you fail the test. So, so my question this morning to you, what is the credible evidence of your salvation? What, what is the fruit? Not, not what are your works. What, what is the credible evidence? What is the fruit in your life that lets you know you are genuinely a child of the king? You're genuinely a Christ follower. So I answer these questions. Number one is the relationship test. And here's the question. Do you have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ? Not do you know about him. Do you have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ? I know Donald Trump. Never been in the same room he is. Never shook his hand. Never talked to him. But I think if he walked in, I could say, that's the president. I, I, I've heard his voice. I've seen him enough. I know the president of the United States. I also know Debbie Canfield, my wife. But I, I've known her for 44 years. I know what she likes, what she dislikes, what makes her happy and sad. And, and the way I know my wife is vastly different than the way I know the president. And some of us know God the way we know the president. We know his position. Might recognize him if we're in his presence but we do not have a personal relationship with him. We've never talked with him. We don't have intimacy with him. Jesus said this. He said, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. It's not a guessing game. I've had people say in, in response to, are you a Christian? I think so. I hope so. I want to be. It, it's not a guessing game. These things are written that you might know that you have eternal life. Jesus said this, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Do you know the voice of God? Do you follow him? 
By the way, in that same passage there in John 10, Jesus said this, and, and once you are placed into my Father's hand, no man can pluck you out of the Father's hand. And people say what that means is once saved, always saved. I think a better way to say that is this is people that are genuinely a part of the family of God, they're going to persevere in their faith. People say, they take that and say, well, if you prayed that magical prayer when you were a child, you may go through 40 years of, of rebellion and disobedience and sin, but because you prayed those magical words, everything's okay. You can't lose your salvation. I, I think a lot of people were praying for that they would come back to God. We need to change our prayer and pray that they would meet God. Because, because they do not have the conviction of the Spirit in their life, obviously, if they can live for decades upon decades apart from the conviction of God that leads them to repentance. Do you have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ? Here's the second question. It's the love test. Do you love God more than the things of this world? 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What do you love? If you wanted me to evaluate your life, I'm sure you don't, but if you wanted me to evaluate your life, I'd ask you to show me two things. You show me your calendar and your checkbook. And I can tell you what you love. Because where you spend your time and where you spend your money, that's what you love. And you can say you love God till you're blue in the face. You can say you love your family. But where you spend your time and where you spend your money, that's what you love. Where did you spend your time and money last week? Where are you going to spend it this next week? Will you do anything this next week that you'll be able to find a million years from now? What do you love? And when you love and are controlled by the things of this world, it says something about your life. Now listen, I'm not saying that a Christian can't momentarily love the things of this world and still be a Christian. But as you look at the overall view of your life, what does your life look like? Here's a third test. It's the sin test. When you sin, do you sense conviction and chastisement that leads you to repentance? I, I, I hate this, but, but one of the reasons that I know I'm a Christian is because of Hebrews 12, 6. It says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. God spanks his children because he cares about them, because he loves them. I spank my children. I don't spank other people's children. That's their parents' job. But because I love my children, I care enough about them. When Anna was a toddler, she's crawling towards some electrical outlet. And I say, Anna, do not play around this outlet. There's electricity in this wall. And if you put that fork you have in that hole, then this electricity is going to come out and it's going to hurt you very bad. So do not play or stick things in that plug. I walk away. She's doing it again. Well, what do I do? I spank her. Why? Because I don't like her. I loved her. I didn't want her to be some crispy critter. I, I, I liked her like she was, right? And, and when God sees us walking off a cliff, if we're his child, he's going to love us enough to pull us back, to discipline us. If you can sin and not know the discipline or chastisement of God, it's because you're not his child. God spanks his children out of love and compassion because he cares about them. So, so the question is this, is there a conviction in your life that leads you to repentance? Are you unresponsive to the problem of sin in your life? When sin is pointed out, does it make, is it not a big deal to you? Or are you responsive to the conviction of sin? Are you unresponsive to God himself? Not to a belief in God. You don't say you believe in God. But to the leading of God, are you unresponsive to the word of God? When Dan or Dale or someone else opens his book and says, thus saith the Lord, does this have any impact on you? 
Are you unresponsive to the words that God says? And, and I've wondered this. Can you be spiritually alive and not even be able to carry on a spiritual conversation like I asked you to a few moments ago? You say, oh, man, I, I don't know, evidence of spiritual life in me? Can, can, can you even have, we were in Indiana, uh, Wakarusa, knee deep in mud, right, at, at a church there, and, and um, there was a man who was a deacon in this church, and he was a Chicago Bears fan. I mean, he ate, drank, slept Chicago Bears. And he knew everything. Walter Payton's rushing average, Jim McMahon's passing efficiency. He knew everything past, everything present, everything future. And every time I talked to him, how about them Bears? How about them Bears? He didn't come on the first Monday night because the Bears run Monday night TV. The third Sunday morning of a two-week meeting just like this, this deacon got saved. Now, I want to tell you something. You want to be a good deacon? It really helps to be a Christian. That's, that's a helpful step. And that night, he came to church. He wasn't talking about, about the bears. Now, there's nothing wrong with the bears. Well, a lot of things wrong with the bears. But there's, 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 there's nothing wrong with football. I, I enjoy football. But all of a sudden, his conversation changed up until that time. He had, he had no spiritual... He, listen, some of you can tell me more of the names of your favorite football team's starting lineup or basketball team or whatever than you can the, the 12 disciples. And you can talk about politics, and you can talk about the weather, and you can talk about a thousand other things. But you start talking about God, and it's like, does the guy even talk? Does he even have a tongue? And for some of you, the only time God has talked about in your life is what happens in this auditorium or on this campus. And when you leave here, it won't be talked about again until you come back to this campus. Can a person be spiritually alive and not even have a conversation about spiritual things? Are you really a follower of Christ? Are you unresponsive to holiness? Holiness is a great thing. If you have no desire for purity, you're not a Christian. The Bible says the inner man delights to do the will of the Father. I'm not saying you're always going to be pure, but you'll have a desire for that. You'll have a desire for holiness. If there's no desire to live a holy life, it's because you do not know a holy God. He does not live inside of you. Are you unresponsive to the reality of hell? Do you realize that hell is a real place, regardless of what Rob Bell says? The Bible says it's a place where the fire is not quenched, where the worm dieth not. I don't understand hell, but I understand this. It is a place where God is not. And, and I do not want to be any place apart from where God is reigning supremely. And, and, and some of us, we're coming up to you know, Thanksgiving here and Christmas season. There are going to be people here in the next few weeks, next couple months, that you're going to have a meal with and gather with, people you've been with for years and years and years, and not one time have you ever told them about Jesus Christ. Not one time have you ever shared with them the greatest news in the universe. You say it's really real in your life, but here are people, relatives and friends you see once or twice a year, and never one time have you gone to them and said, listen, I care about you. I care about your eternal destiny. And there is a heaven and there is a hell. And, and I, I want to I see you come to faith in Jesus. Have you ever shared the gospel with those people that you have a meal with twice a year? And yet you say you really believe the reality of hell? If you did, you would share with those people. You'd stop your Thanksgiving meal and say, listen, I've just got to tell you all again. Let me tell you about the greatest news in the universe. Let me stop this Christmas gathering and share the gospel. But the reality is we don't believe it or we would share our faith with people that we know are not headed in the right direction. Are you unresponsive to the reality of eternity? unresponsive to change? Are you changed by the things you profess to believe? 
So, so, so the question for your life is this. If you really have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then is there a conviction in your life, conviction that, that leads you to change, that leads you to, here's the fourth thing, that leads you to repentance. And so the question is this, is my life characterized by repentance? I, I was adopted into God's family at the age of nine. I am sure I did not say in my prayer, I repent of my sins. I probably didn't even know what that word was. You say, well, Steve, how would you know if you've really repented? Repentance is not a one-time act. Repentance is saying, God, anything in my life that is sin or anything you show me in the future to be sin, I give it all up for you. If that's your attitude right now, I don't know when that started in my life, but that's my attitude right now. Is your attitude today, God, anything in my life that's sin or whatever you show me in the future, God, I, I, I want to continually repent. Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. He repeated it two verses later. Unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Repentance is a recognition of our utter, utter sinfulness and selfishness before God. It's a turning of ourself and a turning to God. And any salvation that does not alter the lifestyle of sin, does not transform the heart of the Christian, of the believer, is, is not the salvation God's word thinks, speaks of. I was thinking this through this summer. I jotted this down. If you think you've embraced the gospel or started being a follower of Christ and fit easily into your life without causing any major adjustments to your lifestyle, your desires or aspirations, then it's likely you've never really started following Jesus at all. Listen to that again. If you think you've embraced the gospel or started being a follower of Christ and it has fit easily into your life without causing any major adjustments to your lifestyle, your desires, aspirations, or goals, it's likely you never really followed starting, started following Jesus at all. And the problem is we don't want to talk about repentance. We don't want to talk about a change in our life. Here's what I found. We do a lot of meetings in the South, and it's even more difficult in the South than the North. The most difficult thing in the South is not getting people saved, it's getting them lost. Because everybody's saved in the South. They live in the Bible Belt. Some of you are from the South. And so you grew up in a home where your dad was a preacher, your uncle was a preacher, or whatever. And for most of us, it's not an issue of coming to the place where we get saved. It's admitting that we are not a part of God's family. Like my mother-in-law, who couldn't admit that she was lost. Some of you have prayed a prayer 50 times. It's a worthless prayer. It goes like this. Dear God, if I've never been saved, save me now. What you're saying is I'm not going to acknowledge that I'm a lost, hell-bound sinner. I'm not going to acknowledge that I've been so proud that I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm not going to acknowledge my real need, but I'm feeling guilty right now. So, so maybe one more time I'll pray these magical words. I believe it on the cross. Come on, my heart. Amen. And, and hopefully I'll be able to sleep for the next week. The reality is you cannot be saved until you admit that you're lost. It is that very pride that won't allow you to admit, how can I admit that I'm lost? I'm a senior adult. I've been in this church for decades. I've told everybody I'm a Christian. I've gone on mission trips. I've taught classes. How can I admit that? And you're going to let all of your accomplishments, all of your pride of what people think keep you from a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Tozer said it this way. If you will not turn from your sin, 
you will not turn to Christ. And if you do not turn from, from the sin of, of, of thinking you can save yourself or, or, or not being willing to admit that you're a, a lost sinner because of the, the embarrassment that will be from all the people you've told that you're a Christian, one day it'll be you and God. This crowd won't be here. Your family won't be there. It'll be you and God face to face. It will not matter what anyone else thinks. All that will matter is what God knows about you. And some of you, you lay your head in your pillow at night and you wonder if I didn't wake up tomorrow, I'm not sure where I'd spend eternity. But, but you won't acknowledge that because it's too embarrassing. And your embarrassment is what's keeping you from a relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you ever repented of that sin? Here's the fifth thing. It's the Lordship test. Have you completely surrendered to Jesus Christ as the master and Lord of your life? The Bible says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, we don't make Christ Lord. He already is Lord. This is not works. Works are not necessary for salvation, but for salvation, a person must trust Jesus Christ as their Savior, yes, but also commit himself to Christ as Lord, submitting to his sovereign authority in your life. If you reject the sovereign authority of God, that's, that's really unbelief. Acts says it this way, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. He will not become your Savior until you receive him for all that he is, Lord of all. Tozer said it this way, the Lord will not save those he cannot command. And if you want to come to him and say, yes, I, I, I want to not go to hell, but I don't want you running my life. I don't want you telling me how to live, what to do with my time and my money and my Influence. I, I just want to make sure I can sleep at night. That is not the salvation God's Word speaks of. Now, here's the last one, probably most important. The Holy Spirit of God, if you're saved at this very moment, can give you the inward peace and assurance that you know for sure that you're a child of God. These things are written that you might know that you have eternal life. By the Spirit He hath given us, John 3, 24 says, Romans 8 says, we know that we abide in him and he in us. By the Spirit he hath given us. The Holy Spirit indwells your life. And if, if you're a part of God's family, I believe right now he is giving you a peace and assurance that you know, that you know, that you know. But it may be, for some of you, for the first time in your life, you're going to be honest. Honest enough to acknowledge that you're not really a follower of Christ. You, you, you've said some words but you don't really have a relationship with him. You understand that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death. You understand John 3, 16, whosoever believeth in him. What does it mean to believe? That he exists? The devils believe that. In fact, the devils, James says, believes it so much it causes them to tremble, but they are not followers of Christ. It's not just believing he exists. It's believing he is who he says he is and receiving him as the Lord and the Master. Not just affirming existence. Saving faith has at its heart a willingness to obey. And, and the true test of faith is does it produce obedience? Otherwise, it's not saving faith. Now, now listen, no one seeks after God. The Bible is very clear about that. Romans 3.11 says there's none that seeks after God. Salvation is a God-given commitment of your will. God gives you the faith to believe who God is. You can't put God in a test tube. God gives you faith to believe him. God gives you faith to believe that Jesus is his son. God gives you faith to believe that he died, was buried, and rose again. And it's a free gift, but it will cost you everything. It is only for those who are willing to put Christ as first place in their life. A Christian is someone who is shuddered at the awfulness of their sin. 
They have seen their sin for what it really is, rebelling against the rulership of God in their lives. And they, they have turned from their sin, and they've embraced God's only means of dealing with sin, and that is Jesus Christ. Now look back at this passage. We'll close. We left off verse 20, Matthew 7. You'll know them by their fruits. This is the saddest passage in the entire Bible, I believe, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, one of the kingdom of heaven, but who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Just because somebody says they're a Christian does not mean they are. One stat found that 65% of Americans claim to be born-again Christians. That's just not true. It's true they claim it. But if 65% of Americans were really born-again Christians, we would not be in the condition that we are. In fact, I believe the majority of people in church this morning are, are lost and headed for hell. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, just because someone claims to be a Christian, verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Preachers. You mean there's going to be preachers in hell? Sure there are. I was in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, on a morning similar to this. At the close, a man came and he said, can I say something? And I kind of stopped the crowd and he said, I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor 12 years. I'd resigned my church up north and I was taking another pastorate and we, we were driving on Sunday, just wanted to come to church. So the church happened to be by a freeway and they just kind of happened to come into this service. He said, I realized why I've been so ineffective as a pastor for the last 12 years. Today I met Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. He'd been a pastor 12 years. We're in back-to-back -back meetings on the Atlantic side of Florida and between these two churches, five staff members or their wives got saved. Just because you're a staff member, staff wife, just because you're an elder, a deacon, a high school teacher, just because you've been on a mission trip, mission field, doesn't mean that you're a believer, a follower of Christ. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? In your name cast out demons. Well, what day is this anyway? There are two judgments. There's the great white throne and the judgment seat of Christ. All of us will give account of our life. Christians are the judgment seat of Christ. And, and the great white throne judgment is the lost of all ages. This is a picture of, of, of everyone that has ever lived who does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So, so in this crowd is Adolf Hitler and Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden and, 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 and some people right here in this auditorium. I, mean, I can almost understand someone like Adolf Hitler spending eternity in hell, almost. But what a tragedy to think that Sunday after Sunday someone stands in this pulpit and looks in the faces of people who are not mass murderers. We're not terrorists. We're good people. In thy name it says, cast out demons, exorcists, people who seem to have the apparent power of God in their life to exorcise a demon. You say, Steve, I'm glad I'm not a preacher, glad I'm not an exorcist. Look at the next phrase. And in your name, the many miraculous works. Oh, there's that word. You know what's so sad? Is there going to be people right here, unfortunately, staying in this verse and they're going to say, God, you remember me. I went, I went to that life action thing. I, I, I was at church every week. God, you remember me? I was always involved. In, in all, God, you, and they're going to start listing all the works that they had done. God, I did this and this. And, and, and they're going to hear the saddest verse in the entire Bible. Verse 23. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you who practice lawlessness. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I, I don't know where anyone is here this morning except for me. 
because I can't see in your heart. Perhaps for the first time in your life, you're going to be honest enough to acknowledge that you do not have an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You know about him. You have him on your lips, but not in your life. You can talk Jesus, but you don't walk Jesus. And for the first time, you're going to be honest enough to say, I I do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I, I love this world. My life is revolves around what's going to be best for me. When I'm convicted, I feel bad if I get caught doing something. But conviction and chastisement, God disciplining me, spanking me to move me in the right directions, I, I don't know that, that kind of conviction and chastisement. My, my life is not characterized by repentance. There, there are things I, I know in, in my life right now that, that, that need to change. My life's not characterized by that. That's not me. I've never completely surrendered to Jesus Christ as the master and Lord of my life. And right now, the Holy Spirit is not giving me peace and assurance that I would know for sure that I'm his child. In fact, right now, my spirit is being convicted by the Spirit of God. I don't know where you're at this morning. But maybe for the first time in your life, you're going to be honest. And maybe for the first time in your life, you're going to understand that that Jesus Christ wants to do something personally in your life. And maybe for the first time, you're going to be willing to acknowledge that you're a lost, hell-bound sinner in need of a Savior. I don't know where you're at, but I'd like to pray for you.